Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers based in the United States and Canada. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote, 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at TestDouble. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. Welcome to the episode 270 of the Greater Than Code podcast. My name is Jacob Stobel, and I'm joined with my co-panelist, May Beal. And I'm joined with another panelist, Chelsea Troy. Hi, I'm Chelsea, and I'm here with our guest, Justin Searles. He's a co-founder and CTO at TestDouble, a consulting agency on a mission to improve how the world writes software. His life's work is figuring out why so many apps are buggy and hard to use, why teams struggle to foster collaboration and trust, and why it's so hard for organizations to get traction building great software. The Test Double agents work with clients to improve in all these ways and more. Hi, Justin. How are you today? Hello. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So we like to kick off our sessions by asking you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Well, one superpower might be that I I like to give counterintuitive answers to questions. And and my answer to this would be that I have really, really bad luck. Software and hardware, my entire life has just fallen over for me left and right. Bugs come and seek me out. I, in college, I had I was in a computer science program. And, and so I was around a lot of computers and like Linux data centers and stuff. And, and I think I went through either personally or in the, like the labs that I used, like 20 hard drive failures in four years, like people started joking that I had like an EMP, you know, around me. And so I started to just decide to lean into that, not so much as an identity necessarily, but as a specialty of uh, root cause analysis of like, why do things fail? Like when I see a bug, what does that mean? And to dig into like how to improve quality in, in software. And, and that, that then extended to like later in my career when I was working on delivery teams, like building software for companies and, and institutions. That meant, you know, like identifying more root causes about like what's leading to project failure or for teams to break down. And now I'm, I'm kind of moving, you know, I guess popping the stack like uh, another layer further. I'm, I'm starting to ask, you know, like, what, what are the second and third order consequences of software failing for people having for others? Like I, I see this in my family uh, who are non, you know, non-software industry family members. Like when they, when they encounter a bug and I'm watching them encounter a bug, their reaction is usually to think that they, they're the ones who screwed up, that they're stupid, that they, they just can't figure it out. And I'm literally watching, you know, software that somebody else wrote far away just fail. And it, that's just no good. Right. So I think that the, the fact that I just, so easily expose problems with software and 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 sometimes the teams that make it almost 
effortlessly. It's really given me a, a passion and a purpose to improve and find opportunities to just make it a little bit better. When you talk about software and or teams breaking down, and you're mentioning bugs, so I'm assuming that that's mostly what you mean by breaking down. I'm curious if you have kind of a a mental model of software always breaks down these four ways, teams always break down these three ways. I don't know if you have any, you know, reference texts or things that you've come across as far as like a, yeah, a mental model for what is the world of breaking down? How do we characterize it? That's a great question. And I feel like having been basically doing this for 15 years now, I should be prepared with a better answer. Uh, I've always resisted building kind of, I guess, the communicative version of like an abstraction or a framework for categorizing and simplifying and and compartmentalizing the sort of stuff that I experience. In some ways, my approach (laughs) is like the human version of machine learning, where like I I have been so fortunate because I've been a consultant my entire career to be exposed to so many companies and so many teams that that has developed in me a pattern recognition system that even I don't necessarily understand. It's kind of a a black box to me where I will pick up on, you know, little smells and, and seemingly incidental cues and it'll prompt me to you know, develop a concern or ask a pointed question about something seemingly unrelated, but that I've just come to see as being associated with that kind of failure. And I think, you know, your question's great. Like I should probably spend some time like coming up with quadrants or a system that like distills down some of this. But really, you know, when I talk about bugs, that is a lagging indicator, right? Of so many things upstream that are not necessarily code related. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I want to be on the show here and, and talk to you all today is because like I've been thinking a lot about trust and interpersonal relationships, starting with like us as individuals and like whether we trust the work that we're doing ourselves or trust ourselves to really dive in and truly understand the stuff that we're building versus feel like we need to go and follow some other pattern or instructions that are handed to us. And when I see teams fail to kind of try to answer your question more directly. When I see teams fail, it usually comes down to a lack of authentic, empathetic, and like logical targeted relationships where you have strong alignment about like, why are we in this room? Why are we working together? How do we best, you know, normalize on an approach so that when any person in any role is operating, that is consistent with if somebody else on the team had been taking the same action, that they would operate in the same way so that we're all marching in the same direction. And that requires shared values. And that it requires so many foundational things that are so often lacking in teams as software is developed today, where companies grow really fast. The pay right now is is really, really high, right? Which is great. But it results in like, you know, I think a little bit of a gold rush mentality to just always be shipping, always be hustling, always be pushing. And as there's less time for the kind of slack that we need to think about baking in quality or coming back to something that we built a couple of weeks ago and that maybe we've got second considerations about. Because there's not that kind of time, there's there's even less time sometimes for the, the care and feeding that goes into just healthy relationships that build trust between people who are going to be spending a third of their life working together. You mentioned picking up on uh, little smells that then lead you to ask pointed questions. I think that's really interesting because that kind of intuition I've found is really essential to being a consultant and figuring out how to ask those questions is as well. Can you provide some examples of situations like that? Yeah, I'll try to think of a few. I had a 
a client once that was undergoing, this is uh, 10 years ago now, what we called at the time an agile transformation. They were going from like a waterfall process of, you know, procuring two year, $2 million contracts and teams to build big design upfront systems that are kind of just sort of thrown over a fence. And then a team would go and work on it. And then it would go through like a proper user acceptance testing onto something more agile, I guess, you know, adopting Scrum and extreme programming, interpersonal process and, and engineering practices. That was just meant to be more, I guess, iterative, of course, innovative, collaborative, like more dynamic and, and able to, you know, let the team kind of drive its own destiny. All that sounds great. And you walk into the team room and they just invested millions of dollars into this beautiful, newly restored, you know, historic building. I sit down with everyone and I, I look at them and like they've got the cool desks at the time and cool open office plan because those were still considered cool. And I sat down and I couldn't help but, <laughs> this is really silly, I couldn't help but notice that like there was a, a pretty strong smell, <laughs> body odor, like throughout the whole room. And it wasn't like one person, I'm not picking on somebody here. It was that the interpersonal relationships were so frayed and the fear of failure was so strong and the deadline pressure that had been exerted uh, from on high was was so overwhelming that people, there was no safety in the room. People were just scared at their job all day long. And it was having a material impact that like, you know, only an outsider who's walking in at 2 p.m. on a Friday could detect because everyone else had acclimated. And so, you know, I walked in and I was like, well, what do I, <laughs> obviously I'm not going to be like, Hey, it stinks in here. Like I got to figure out a way to ask, just understand why, why do people feel unsafe? Right. And I, maybe I didn't have that like sentence go through the voice in my head, but it, it definitely put me on a path towards talking to maybe like the less privileged people in the room, the people who are not the managers to understand like what's really going on, what pressures are they under? I love that the example includes legit real smell. So many times, especially in our industry, and part of what this podcast is is counteracting is like getting in touch with the fact that we are people and humans. And so anyway, I, I love that you brought that home that way. Also, I wanted to say from earlier, I wasn't trying to corner you into expecting to have a philosophy. I thought you might, um, and it was worth asking, but I recently got asked a similar question about, you know, my management philosophy and, you know, which authors do I appreciate most or something. And I, I've been a manager for 25 years. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I figure out what is needed. And then I deal with that. Like, I don't understand how to answer. So I just want to give some pay you back and apologize. I didn't mean to, to not, get you. Not, at, not at all. And you sort of, it becomes one of those, like, you know, when you see it, I, I struggle with this a lot because, you know, somebody introduced the concept uh, years ago of, of beginner's mindset to me, where sometimes if I'm a beginner at something, the best person to help me is not the expert, the person who's been doing it for 20 years. It's somebody who's just a few hours or a few days or a year or two ahead of me, because they can still remember what it felt like to be where I am right now. And because I talk a lot, because uh, I tweet a lot, because I'm I show up in a lot of places and I have a you know an outward facing sales role to like you know potential clients and candidates, I meet a lot of people who come to me and they're like, how do I learn how to code? And I'm like, I can tell you the 15 year version of this story, but it's probably going to be really depressing. And I've, I've taken it as a responsibility to like you know try to, and I need to do a much better job of this be armed with either resources or people that I trust that I can refer folks to so that I'm not totally leaving them hanging. I 
love that. And yes. And speaking of teaching people how to code and what you said, there's a name for it that I'm forgetting about being a teacher. If you are closer to the student, you actually are a more effective teacher. So there's just two comments. The first one is in, I'm a part of RailsBridge. I helped found the Southeast Regional Chapter. So if anybody any listeners out there still want to learn how to code or are having that same, like, I don't know how to tell you about my (laughs) zigzag story. And ideally they wouldn't all be depressing, but I'm sure they all include some real low moments. But RailsBridge, which is a bridgestroll.org, has recurring events where people can go all over the country. And obviously in pandemic times, it's not as much in person, but yeah. And on the the comment about teaching and when you mentioned talking to the people with the least privilege in the room, I'm just really sensitive and appreciative of your sensitivity to power politics and how much they impact so much of what is happening and trust. So for anybody out there who's being asked to help new people and you feel like you're still the new person, you're probably in a better position to help. So just want to offer some encouragement there. I have personally found a lot more confidence in helping people who are just behind me. And then anytime you're teaching, you're you're learning. So just want to put those in. And I love that actually your answer instead of a, a quadrant is really just the one word of trust. And I appreciated the ways in which you were mentioning trust can be different things. Trust in what you're building, trust in who's asking you to do it. And, you know, Chelsea asked for a couple of examples and I interrupted, so I apologize. But what are some trust building exercises that you have encouraged or examples of, yeah, like maybe even continuing with that same story? Six months later, was it a fresher air in there? And what are some things that they did to make that happen? Yeah, that story, like so many teams and companies in our industry, didn't undertake the redemption arc that I wish I could convey, right? I think, in fact, to see a big picture problem and the desire to connect that with a big picture, tidy solution, a future state where it's all rainbows and unicorns and everyone, you know, really getting along well. Sometimes that sets for me personally, and when I see consultants who are less experienced, who can see that end state in mind, and they, they know maybe the top three hit list of, of stuff that needs to happen to help that organization get to where they need to be, we can sometimes set the bar so high for ourselves in terms of expectations of like, what does it mean to help them become better, that we can't help but lose sight of the value of just incremental improvement. If I can just help like restore one relationship between two people on a team, I had one client, you know, years and years ago, <laughs> they were also undergoing a pretty big transition and, and they they brought me in as sort of like a, I think that the, what they thought they were hiring me for was to be like a test-driven development coach to teach them that particular practice of TDD. And they got instead on day one, there was a room of 30 people, you know, interdisciplinary, you know, cross-functional team. So some developers, some non-developers and stuff. And I could just tell that they were like, it was a big epic rewrite from a Perl code base that I think they were moving to like Node.js and Angular. And as well as like a chewing off cloud infrastructure uh, at the same time, as well as agile software practices at the same time. And they were, they were overwhelmed and they, they, they've seen this fail before 
and they felt a ton of pressure from the business and they didn't even really understand, I don't think, like the future business model. Like even if they were successful, it wasn't clear this was going to solve systemic problems for the company. And I'm like, well, I can teach you all TDD, (laughs) right? But instead, what my commitment to you all will be is that six months from now, you'll either have been successful and learned all of these things and like built the thing as the business has asked you to, uh, and, and then the business takes off, or I will have helped you equip you with skills and ways of thinking about this industry and our work that will set you up to get much better jobs next time. And again, the company didn't, you know, totally come together. It didn't take off like a rocket ship. The team was successful in the rewrite, which doesn't happen very often. But then you saw almost a diaspora of dozens of highly skilled people. And this was in central Ohio, who then went on to some went to venture backed startups. Some went to big, you know, uh, established enterprise kind of companies. Some left the the region and, and went elsewhere. And that turned into, if I had to count, probably eight, nine additional test double clients <laughs> down the road uh, where they came in and they could they could spot in a minute, like this is a, a way that an outside perspective who's here to help us a moment of tremendous need can move the needle just a little bit. And, and by setting expectations realistically and being humane about it and focused on like what's best for the people involved, because at the end of the day, all companies are collections of humans. That was, I guess, more my orientation. So Justin... I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I appreciate what you just shared. So I worked at Pivotal Labs for a while, Original Labs, when it was sort of generalists, enablement, very heavy on that kind of thing. And one of the things that we ran into relatively frequently was similar to what you've described, wherein one of two things would happen either. The clients were successful and there was a vastly improved, I guess, software delivery culture among the people that we were working with, or... If that didn't work out, then there were individuals who took to it very well and had gained variety of skills that allowed them to go elsewhere. It happened enough times that then potential new clients would, we would have to establish trust with potential new clients around this whole additional axis, which was effectively, is this going to cause a diaspora of all of these engineers and designers and PMs that I've managed to scrape together for this project? Do you find Test Double ever facing that or how do you address either beforehand if product owners are aware of it or after it happens, how do you address that with clients? That's a, a fantastic question. And you know, Pivotal Labs was one of the companies that we looked at. We, we started Test Double 10 years ago. I was at the time just starting to speak at user groups and, and conferences. And I spent a lot of time with the people at the uh, the Boulder office at Pivotal Labs Uh, Great people. I really appreciated the focus and the rigor. And in fact, you know, May, to answer a question earlier about like process or abstraction about like, hey, boil it down for me. Pivotal Lab sold like a very branded, very discreet process for like, this is the way to build software. And in in a sense, some of the decisions that we made when we started Testable were a response against that. Just to say like, we trust the people closest to the work to make the right decisions based on uh, tremendous experience and skills. And frankly, as we get bigger and more successful, having some, you know, somebody like me at the top of an organization who only talks at the beginning of a client relationship, which is the moment that we know the least, and I've got the least amount of context, for me to go and say, well, this is the way that we got to test or whatever, it would just be 
ineffective and inappropriate. And so to, to answer your question, Chelsea, like, fortunately, our brand power isn't nearly as strong as Pivotal Labs. So no client has ever come to us in advance with that as a, a question <laughs> to say, hey, I'm worried that you're going to train our people in this particular methodology, and then they're going to leave for higher paying jobs or something. That's never come up in advance. In fact, one of the things that we talk a lot about is that because our consultants join client engineering teams to work with them inside of their own process, using their own tools and their own system, is we just try to be model citizens of somebody on that team. We trust our clients that like, whatever your process is, it's apparently working for you. So let's just try it. And if we have ideas for how to make that better, we will listen, we'll write them down. But then only once we've built trust and rapport with the people on that team, will we start to share, hey, I've got a rainy day list of a few things that you might want to try, right? And what that's actually done is it has a detoxifying effect where from a context of high trust, the the incongruity, the distrust, the kind of back channel frustrations that our people pick up on because we're kind of quote unquote, in the trenches with our client folks, we're able to have multiple pathways into that client organization to help make it a better place to work. Uh, we got like one of the best pull quotes that I, I, I've ever seen uh, on our website recently. Uh, one of our clients is Betterment. They're a great financial management firm in, in New York, where it's kind of like an autopilot savings vehicle. And the director of engineering, Caitlin there said that she saw like on the teams where testable people were deployed, attrition actually went down. And, and I think it's because we help those teams perform better. Uh, and so, you know, uh, an old friend of mine named Leon Gersing, he uh, used to have a thing he'd say, he, he'd said, you can either change where you work or you can change where you work. Uh, meaning like you can either make the place that you're at better uh, or you can go find gainful employment elsewhere. And we're in the make the place where people work better business wherever possible is a first avenue. You're reminding me of a book that I'm reading right now called What Got You Here Isn't Going to Get You There. Are you all familiar with it? I was so proud of my wife because she asked for that on Audible earlier this week because I'm the I'm the person with the Audible credit <laughs> account and and I'm like oh I I, this is this is quoted in like business leadership contexts left and right and all over the place so it'll give us a, a touchstone to talk about yeah well the the TLDR is so much of especially management focused and leadership focused thought is about things that you should do and this book is probably along your lines, Justin, of giving the counterintuitive answer. This is, here's 20 things that you might want to consider not doing. <laughs> and it's not, and then replace it with the good behavior, because that is such a stretch in real life to actually do, that it's, how about you just pick like a couple of these that you know you're a repeat offender, and like just stop, just try to not do it. That's the main first thing. And yeah, I've found that a refreshing take on how to think about how to guide in ways that are building more trust and offering more safety. So definitely recommend that book. I don't know that it came out of this book, but the person who recommended it to me, my VP, Scott Turnquist, who is amazing, shared that there are really four categories of things that can help build trust. And it's definitely all done incrementally. So picking up on that word you said earlier, Justin, too. But the four kind of axes are credibility, reliability, intimacy, and selfless motivation. If you can demonstrate those recurringly, 
that is how to establish and or course correct into a state of increased trust. So anyway, that was partly why my original statement was like, do you have this down? Because I've heard some things lately that I've been thinking about. I really appreciate your perspective there. And it makes me feel better because one of my commitments in life is to never write a book. But if I were to write a book, I'd probably have to come up with a tidy quadrant, a Harvard Business Review two by two or something like that to, I guess, support the good work of the people at Cliff Notes and Blinkist to boil down years worth of work into a 30-minute podcast. I think that the advice as you expressed it is completely valid. And there's one thing that I think is a core ingredient to trust trust of ourselves, you know, trust of people that we work with directly, and then trust of like leadership and the people who run the organizations that we're a part of. That is the hardest, in my opinion, is authenticity. If you're not like you, I think you said uh, credible. If you combine credible and like intimacy, like vulnerability, those are really useful words to prompt what I mean when I say authenticity. If I'm talking to somebody and I can lock eyes with them, and I believe that what they're saying is, you know, what they actually feel and it's their true self and they believe it, then all sorts of like other kind of background processes in my head of like trying to like read the tea leaves of what's going on here, all the passive analysis that I might do to try to understand, you know, what's the subtext that this person's operating from? That's a, a form of kind of armor or a guard that just like it, it depletes my cognitive ability to talk to the person. And Authenticity is a, is a signal that, that, that we pick up on as humans. And this is why, you know, I like, it's a, mir- a miracle that we have video chat in this era. And it's why I really relish one-on-one in-person interactions when I can have them. Authenticity is a signal that I can drop that guard a little bit. It's that I can like really look and really like listen to what the person's saying and take it at face value. And the problem <laughs> with just saying, oh, okay, well, just be authentic. Just be your true self is that like that is useless advice and way more likely to trigger somebody's defenses or, or their self doubt. And when I think about authenticity in like a, the context of a team uh, or an organization is that the people who are maybe in not not in a position of power. People who report up the chain, if they don't come across as authentic to their leaders, the leader should not look at that as a failing of the person, but as a failure of their ability to figure out how to promote and uh, draw out authenticity from the people who report to them. Maybe they don't have safety in the room to speak their true mind. Maybe they feel like the things that make them different from the other people that they work with are a liability or a risk. And so they can't really bring their true self to work. It's the leader's job to, when they spot inauthenticity, rather than go on a, you know, a hunt, like a political, you know, back channel to try to figure out like, why is this person lying? What's under here? You know, figuring out what is it about the person's context, the environment, kind of the system that they are operating in, like what could possibly be an explanation for why I can't develop an authentic connection with this person. And until you run out of every single possible explanation in that investigation, including self-reflection of like, what is it that I'm individually doing and how I communicate to this person that's getting in the way, only then is it really useful to start thinking about like, you know, maybe this person's not a good actor. Maybe they're being duplicitous or something. Because once you've, once you've hit that button, it is really hard to go back. And so when we talk about authenticity, we often talk about the individual's responsibility to present it, to be it. You know, if you can fake authenticity, then uh, you can do anything, right? That is 
advice. It's fine. Like I, I hope that everyone feels the safety. Like I'm a cishet white dude who's like pretty powerful, right? In like my little corner of this small pond. Like I have no problem just spouting off and being my true self, right? And so like I should just tell other people to do that too. That's not fair. I think that what is better advice for people who are maybe not in positions of power is to be really good at detecting authenticity. When you detect authenticity and people are making their true selves known to you and you're feeling a connection with them, whether they're peers or managers, spend more time with them. Invest in those relationships and use those people as anchors of trust so that when you're failing to make that connection elsewhere, or when you have doubts about others in the organization, you can have uh, more points of perspective on how to best address it. I read an article yesterday that says laziness doesn't exist. That's the title of it. And it essentially says that same thing of what's the context in which this is happening? People don't procrastinate like for fun. In fact, it usually takes more work. And yeah, starting from a place of what shoes are you in? But I especially love the in what way am I impacting that person's ability to be themselves? Also, I must have said the word authenticity because this list is credibility, reliability, intimacy, selfless motivation. But authenticity and credibility and all of these things do also have to do with the thing that I loved you bringing up about identity and power politics and what happens when your environment is not allowing you to be credible. So another way in which, you know, people can as good peers, mentors, and managers and above can do is in what way am I bolstering these people's credibility? And so, yeah, always flipping it back to how are we the perp? (laughs) And that's very similar to, you know, social justice, racial justice. Like the more we see how we are perpetuating and disenfranchising, regardless of identity, that's where there's some hope for uh, the humans in, in, in my mind. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciate that you've both brought up, Justin and May, is the degree to which power gradients play a role in the way that we deal with these things. And there are demographic power gradients with regard to race, with regard to gender. There are also power gradients with regard to our position in the company, with regard to technical privilege, with regard to our level of skill, with regardless to the size of our network. And we also, I think, live in this sort of individualist culture that has a tendency to place the responsibility on individuals to do what they can to resolve. For example, what you were saying, Justin, about how we effectively coach people to like, just be authentic. And maybe that coaching works fine in some contexts, but that's a subset of the context in which we're asking people to apply it. And asking individuals to resolve this from the bottom up sometimes, as opposed to looking for the systemic reasons why this is a thing that has to be solved in the first place. I'm curious as to whether you have thoughts on what a person can do who finds themselves in a position of power, in a position of leadership in a company, for example, to address those sorts of questions with other folks who are working there. I think... One thing that can be helpful, and I realize your question is about like, what can a leader do? One thing that can be helpful is for those leaders to empathize and put themselves in the shoes of people who might not have the same privileges that, you know, as you described. And what would it take to, and I, and I'm, this is 
I'm, I'm waiting outside my area of expertise here would be to think about what are the things that are in a given person's sphere of direct control and what isn't and what am I setting up and what am I communicating in terms of expectations that I have of them? You know, an example that came up a, a lot in our industry was like the number of sort of like, you know, drink up events in tech in, in the early 2010s where there was sort of an assumption that like, you know, everyone likes alcohol, right? And like when people in public drink alcohol, only good things happen, which is like, turns out isn't true. But it can also be the case, like, you know, there are invisible expectations that we communicate because like, I'm a big fan of like granting people autonomy to solve problems in their own way, to uh, approach work the way that they feel is best. Our company has been remote from day one. And a big part of that was we want people in control of everything from where they work to the, the like their home network to the computers that they use, right? Because like when I had that control pulled away from me in the role as developer, it just sapped my motivation, my drive, my engagement, my, my sense of control over the stuff that's right in front of me. And when I now in a, in a, in a role of influence over other people, whenever I speak, I, I have to think about the negative space of like, what are the expectations uh, uh, that I might be conveying that are not explicit? And so I need to be careful, right? Of like, even expressing something like hobbies, right? Or shows that I like or stuff. You know, we all, especially in this remote world, we want to develop connectedness. But a challenge that I keep running into is that our ability to find mutual human connection with people about stuff other than work rides the line really closely of communicating like, you know, some, some other allegiance or affiliation, whether that's, you know, we talk about sports a lot because that's an obvious one, but even just, you know, interest in hobbies. And so I find myself, and, and I realize, Chelsea, I'm, I'm doing a really poor job, I think, or answering the question as, as you asked it. I find myself only really able to even grapple with like, what can leaders do to set the tone for the kind of environment that's going to be you know, inclusive and safe for other people by really digging in and empathizing with and calling up and dredging up what their own experience was when they were not in a position of power. And one of my, you know, if, if I have a secondary superpower is like, I had a real rough start to my career. I was in really, really, really rough client environments that were super hostile. I had a C-level executive at a Fortune 500 company scream at me until his face was red in a room one-on-one -on -one with a closed door on a regular basis. The sorts of stuff that like developed callous on me that like, you know, like I look back at a lot of those experiences and I'm like, I learned a bunch. Like I, it was, it, it supercharged my career as an individual because it strengthened me. And so the challenge that I have is like, what can I take from those really, really harsh experiences and translate them for people who are coming up in a way that they don't have to go through the same trials and tribulations, but that they can like take away from it the lessons that I learned. And for me, it's all about not just safety for the sake of safety, but safety by which myself and others can, can sort of convey the useful growth that people want to see in themselves and their skills and their abilities that, that isn't diluted that can convey the truth and the difficulty and the challenge and like how hard, like this is a real programming is really, really hard for me. And I've been doing it for a long time. 
Like a lot of stuff about this is just like not easy. The relationships are not easy. Like you're going to run into situations where there's massive differences between like where people stand on stuff and what those perspectives look like. And navigating that is hard enough without adding a whole like layer of toxicity and hostile work environment, right? And so what's a way to promote that learning environment without just totally insulating somebody from reality? That's been, I think, a challenge and a tension that I see a lot of other like-minded leaders in tech trying to figure out how to create. You reminded me of a meme that someone shared with me that says, what doesn't kill you can dysregulate your nervous system, trap itself in your body, steal your sense of self, make you wish it did. I don't know what makes you stronger means, but let's stop glorifying trauma as a life lesson we've been blessed with. (laughs) Definitely along the same lines. Yeah, relatable. There's a thing too about putting oneself in another's shoes. And this is a place where I'm someone that can read people really well, but that makes that tricky, right? Because I start to trust my sense of it and I have a similar whole architecture going if I don't feel like I'm getting the whole story. So like, what's the read between the lines thing? But without a lot of exposure to a lot of very different people, and most people have not had a lot of exposure to a lot of different people, when they put themselves in the other person's shoes, they come up with a different conclusion. And so I will feel hurt by people who do things that were I to put myself in their shoes would not have done that to me. Or if they did, it's because of X, Y, Z about who they are or what they think or what is their whole context and environment. And all of that is, uh, there's a tactic that we use at TrueLink Financial called don't cross the net. So you say and claim, the story I tell myself about that is dot, dot. So when leaders who haven't had a lot of exposure to a lot of different people and a lot of different ideas try to empathize and find themselves limited in that, there are other options, which include one of the things you said earlier, making it so that people can say the things on their mind. So whether or not that's person's being their authentic self, you know, this is a a whole nother level, but creating a place where we expect that we're all messing up and that it's okay to talk about uncomfortable things is uh, one of my real soapboxes. Like, it's totally okay. Yes, we are all racist. We are all sexist. We are all homophobic. Like, there is no way to not be as a result of being in the culture we're in. We can do things to mitigate it. We can do things to name it. But if we just start from like, yes, we're all failing, this for me is like, it lowers the stakes because so many people feel that if someone brings up, hey, that's kind of sexist or this is not supporting me in this way or my credibility is not being seen because of this. In the absence of already, yo, we're going to talk about some negative stuff sometimes. That's an introduction of negativity to the quote unquote positive, happy rainbow unicorn workplace that you were talking about before. And so, yeah, one of my hopes and dreams is that we get some clouds to rain on the land to allow things to actually grow. And this includes, yo, we are not perfect and we are definitely 
doing things we don't intend all the time. That made me think about authenticity again, because like open about imperfection. I'm a neurodiverse person, so I probably am autistic. And if someone were to say to me at work, like, we really want you to bring your authentic self, probably the thing I would think is you don't want that person, <laughs> or at least without like getting to know me a lot better. There's a concept called masking, where it's basically like, there are things that there are behaviors and traits that are exhibited by neurotypical people that just come naturally to them. And by learning the hard way, I've sort of learned to do them even if they don't feel natural at all. Like, you know, making eye contact, smiling at people when talking, you know, things like that. And yeah, so I, I think that sort of complicates authenticity for me, which is that like, I'm intentionally not hiding, but sort of choosing what parts of myself to show and what parts I just don't want to bring to work. <laughs> so yeah, I don't have like a clean answer for that or a solution to that. But I think that just sort of just complicates things for me. I uh, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's a really important perspective to bring, which is, you know, I talked earlier about like, you know, sure, plenty of people's true authentic selves, even if they were to bring them, they might be in a job or in a space or in a team where that wouldn't be understood as such or appreciated or literally safe. Like it's hard to tell people, hey, you should feel safe when the truth, when spoken, uh, would be an unsafe thing, right? Uh, that would be setting people up for risk and for danger. And for it, it would be a seed of distrust, which is like kind of like what we're all here to talk about avoiding, right? And so I really appreciate you sharing that. And when I talk about empathy earlier, May, like I really, I'm, in my brain, all that really comes through it is the EM part of that word, like the, the, the root for emotion. Like I never really have been able to assume that I can kind of get somebody's context and their perspective and the moment that they're in into my brain well enough to kind of like role play and do a redramatization, you know, of like in like in black and white sepia tones, like in slow motion, like this is what Justin would do if he was here. Like I, that's one reason why we trust people at our company to just do the work because like we know that they're going to have such a richer amount of data and context than we'll ever have. But one thing that I'm grateful for is that I've been able to experience what I feel like is a pretty broad range of emotion. <laughs> I'm a real emotionally volatile person. I go uh, super high highs, super low lows. And I'm just like, it's how I've been. I can't help it. And so when I'm empathizing with people, I'm just trying to get in like the mindset of like, you know, how do they likely feel right now so that I can understand and, and try to do a better job meeting them where they are. And a big part of that is like learning there are differences. And so Jacob, of course, if like I worked with you, I understand you might not like necessarily, it might not be productive to bring all of yourself to work all the time, but I would hope to develop a, a, a trusting relationship with you where you can share enough so that I can know what are the boundaries that are going to be productive for you, productive for me, uh, so that we, we can make a connection. And it's something like to make this a little bit more personal. I don't know where my career is going to go next. I founded Test Double with my partner, Todd, I was only 26 years old and we've been doing this for 10 years now. Two years ago, we embarked on a journey of transferring 100% of the equity of the company to our employees. And so we're on a, a, an employee stock ownership plan now. It's a, if ESOP or, or any of the stuff, like it, it is complicated because it's like well-regulated. So we have to have outside auditors, uh, valuation firm. We have a, a third-party trustee to make sure that like our people and the value of the company is like, you know, transferred appropriately and treated right and managed well. And so it's, it's naturally raised, especially in my circle of friends and family who realize that like, this means that, you know, like there's a, 
not an end date, but there's a moment at which like I can start thinking about what my life is going to be next. And the people who knew me when I was 25, 26, who look at me now, it's not that I've changed radically or my identities are radically different or anything. It's like, I am a very different kind of person than I was at 26, than I was at 20 before I got into this industry. And I have changed in healthy ways and in maladaptive ones and in, in response to maybe trauma and stress, such that like, you know, the, 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 the ideal retirement that I would have imagined earlier in my life looks a lot different now where I, I I've just kind of become habituated. Like I I'm a really, really different person than I used to be. And I'm grateful for that in almost every way. I feel like I've grown a lot as a person. But the, the thing about me that I really look at as, as, as an area of change is that I, I just work too much. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm online all the time. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on, on opt- I've optimized productivity so much that it's become like kind of ingrained in me. And I understand that whatever I do next, or even if it's just changing my role inside my company, I need to find a way to create more space for like slower paced asynchronous thought and learning how to, in the context of a career, not just bring your true self. I'm kind of curious, you know, other Chelsea and May and and, and Jacob's perspective, like that true self might be changing (laughs) intentionally and there's a directionality and like the growth isn't just learning new skills necessarily, but it might be pretty changing core things about ourselves that will alter the dynamic of the relationships that we bring to work. Yeah. I have two thoughts on that that I can share. The first is the extent to which bringing my true self is a productive thing to do at work. So for example, my career prior to tech, I did a variety of different things to make ends meet, like really a wide variety of things. I graduated directly into one of the bigger recessions. I won't tell you the exact one because I don't feel like being aged right now, but Uh, It wouldn't take too much research to figure it out. I was trained to do a government job that was not hiring for the next 18 months at a minimum. And I needed to figure out what to do and was trying to make ends meet. And in my first year of employment, I got laid off slash my job ended slash something like that on four separate occasions in my first year of work. And that resulted in, I do not trust when managers tell me that everything is fine. I have not ever effectively. And that is something that I don't foreground that in work discussions for a variety of reasons. I don't want to scare other people. I don't want them to think I know something that they don't know about what's going to happen because I don't usually, you know, I just, when managers tell me, oh, everything's great. We're doing great. All that kind of stuff. I just like sort of don't listen. I don't, my decisions do not take that statement into account. And I find that that's the kind of thing that I think about when I'm asked to bring my whole self from my authentic self to a place is that there are things that just, I mean, sort of similar to what Jacob is saying. I'm like, you don't just trust me, trust me on this. You don't want that. And uh, so that's kind of the first thought in that realm. The second thought that I have around this is the degree to which work should really encompass enough of our lives to require or demand our authenticity. So I had a variety of full-time jobs in tech, and then I 
quit one of those full-time jobs and I was an independent consultant for a while, bolstered chiefly, and I was lucky for this, by folks who had read my blog and then folks who had worked with me when I was at Pivotal. So the consulting effect of like people knowing what it's like to work with you is real. And that experience felt very different from a full-time position insofar as that the external validation of my work was naturally distributed in a way that it's not in a full-time position. And I found that distribution extremely comforting such that even though I now have a full-time job, I also continue client work and I continue teaching and I continue writing and doing workshops and those kinds of things. And this is not the chief reason that I do that, but one of the nice things about it is the diversification of investment in the sort of feedback that I'm receiving and validation that I'm receiving. And uh, in order to do that, I have an amount of energy that I put to each of the things in my life. And part of it is work, of course. But another reason that I think it works for me is that I no longer have to expect all of my career fulfillment from any one position from any one employer, from any one place, which has worked out very well because I think that we peddle this sort of notion implicitly that you bring your whole self to work and in return, work provides for your whole career fulfillment. But most places really kind of can't. And it's not because they're terrible places to work. It's just because the goals of a company are not actually to fulfill the employees. They're just not. That's not the way that that works. And so it has allowed me, and I think would allow others, to approach the role that a given employment situation plays in their life from what I think is a more realistic perspective that ends up helping keep me sort of more satisfied in any given work relationship. But it doesn't, it doesn't necessitate that I like I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, it limits the degree of emotional investment that I have in any one thing, because I'm not expecting all of my fulfillment out of any one thing. But I think that to say that explicitly sometimes runs at best orthogonal and, and at worst maybe contraindicates a lot of what we talk about when we talk about bringing our whole selves to work and looking for the those personal connections at work. I think there is a pragmatic limit past which we maybe impose more guilt than we need to on ourselves for not doing that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think, you, you know, may use the phrase like lower the stakes earlier. And I think that like one of the problems with authenticity, the phrase bring your whole self, you know, trust is that the stakes are super high because it seems like these are Boolean contracts between parties. Like, for example, you said that you don't trust managers. Like if I was filling out a form, like a personality inventory or something, it's like, do you trust managers? Like I'd say no. And I think like 90% of people would say no. It's sort of like the economy right now. Like I think like uh, the economy approval rating of like, is the economy good or bad is like at like 23%, but like individuals are saying at like roughly 60% levels that they are individually doing okay in this economy. Like I, I would say the same, like, do I trust my manager? Oh, hell yeah. I completely trust my manager right now. And to lower the stakes even further, when I've been talking about 
trust, it's not so much about where do I find fulfillment or what's my identity or who am I being, or it's about a snap orientation. It's the most immediate sphere. Oh man, this is like, this Postgres query is like really slow and I'm like, can't figure it out. Like is my snap reaction, my orientation to think I believe in myself enough to dig into this, to figure it out. Or is it to doubt myself and just kind of get lost in a thousand, a tab of a, a sea of a thousand stack overflow tabs and just like slowly like lose my whole evening? You know, when I'm on, in a team in a high, you know, maybe a, working with them and we were in planning or something, or maybe we're in a, a, a higher stakes thing, like a, let's say a code review session, right? And somebody makes a comment about something that I did. Is my snap reaction to like, doubt their motivations and, and think like, ah, they're just trying to like passive aggressively kind of shoehorn in their favorite architecture here. Right. Or this is politics and like gamesmanship. Or is my snap reaction be like, nope, like let's try to like interpret the words that they're saying as literal words and, and, and like take it on its face. And that's that little, like, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a, a highly emotionally volatile person. Like th- that weather vane shifts with me all the time. And I can, sometimes I can control it and sometimes I can just merely observe it. But the awareness of that has been really helpful to understand like my reaction is that like I, when I hear a leader say something in a company, my reaction is I think that they've got ulterior motives and that like they are probably not speaking in like literal truth, right? And like, if that's my snap reaction, I'm just trying to communicate that as like, that's a potential blind spot. Because I have a a long rut of past companies that I worked for that had mission statements and vision statements that were kind of bullshit and like that no one really believed in, that were just kind of in a bronze plaque on a wall or whatever. And that's baggage that I carry. I just have to acknowledge that baggage and and try to move forward. and, And the best I can do is just be present in every moment that I'm in and try to understand like when I have a snap reaction, am I oriented towards what might lead me to a good outcome or a bad one? Holy moly. So many amazing things have been shared today. And Jacob, especially kudos to you for walking us into like a deeper level of authenticity. Love it. Thank you. I'm very similar to answer some of your questions, Justin, very similar to Chelsea in that tech was not my first rodeo. I didn't become a programmer until I was 37 years old, and I am now 45. I'm totally fine with aging myself. And prior to tech, I did put a lot more of my identity in my job, and I would usually do that job pretty much all of the hours possible. And, you know, I've always worked for mission-driven organizations. A lot of the things that we're talking about as far as, like, job fulfillment and whether or not it's a good environment or if it's a toxic environment. And like, there's a lot of privilege in what we're talking about. My parents were paper mill workers and it was not pretty. And they had me when they were 19. So they didn't have another option. That was the highest paying gig in our region and they had no education. So it was never an option to even change that. So I am someone who wants to put my whole self into what I do. It's a very working class mode and gaining like identity through what it is I'm able to do. It's also a pretty capitalist (laughs) mentality that I, I work to move around. But as a manager, when I am a manager in management or managing managers, I'm never encouraging this Everybody needs to bring their whole self to work. Although I had this really instructive experience where one person 
truly did not want to have any of their self at work. Like they truly only wanted to talk about work at work. We're not a family. Nicely nice. I don't want to crochet together or whatever. And that is the, the most challenged I've ever been as a manager because my natural things are always to figure out what people need and want and then like amalgamate that across the group and see how we can do some utilitarian math and like get it so that people are being encouraged in ways they would like and they are not being disadvantaged and they have space to say when that's happening. But even still, I'm always going with the let's be buddies plan. And it's not for everyone. And so like figuring out how to not have, yeah, all of your eggs in any basket, no matter how many hours the job is, is definitely a tactic that has been successful for me. But what happens is I then am involved in so many things. It's all of the moments of life. So I still do that, but I do it by working more, uh, which isn't necessarily the best option. And the thing about the mission that I just wanted to pivot for a second and say is we are no longer in a world where we allow failure. This is a little bit back to my earlier soapbox. And the reality, the like energetic reality is whatever anybody's mission statement is, that is the thing they are going to fail at. Like the seamstress never has the best hemmed clothes. So when we write off anyone or any company based on their flawed attempt at the mission, we're discounting that flaws exist, (laughs) contradictions exist. And it's about where are we orienting and are we incrementally moving toward that or away from it and not in this moment are we this thing that we have declared? Because it's more of a a path is how I see it than the um, declaration of success. Yeah. Thank you so much for that too because I think that one thing we didn't touch on is the universe, I mean, we're talking a greater than code podcast. So it's like, you know, software industry adjacent, at least the universe of people who got to stay home during this whole pandemic, the universe of people who are quote unquote knowledge workers or quote unquote white collar, right. Is like, if you, especially if you look at the population of the world, it's vanishingly small. And there was a season in my life where I was kind of like the person that you just described managing where I just viewed myself as like, I was burnt out. I always wanted to be a mercenary. I'm just like, I had this mindset of like, I show up at work. You want some great code? I'll sling you some great code. Like I was a short order cook for like story points and, and feature development. And that was the terms, right? Like I didn't want to bring my feelings to work. I didn't want to make friends with people because then God forbid it would be harder to leave. I just didn't, I didn't have that available to me as a capacity at that time. But I went long enough and I realized it's not that I was like missing something or not being fed in some way by not having this like emotional need filled at work. It was that like, I was failing to acknowledge when you say privilege, the literal privilege that I get to wake up in the morning and think for a job. (laughs) And 
the impact that I can have when I apply all of the skills and capabilities and background asynchronous thoughts that are not literally in my job description, when I can bring those things to bear, I'm going to have a much, much bigger impact. Because what am I except for one person thinking and staring at a matted piece of glass all day, but somebody who is in a small community or a group of all bunch of people who are in the same mode. And so when I'm in a meeting, like I can just be the mercenary jerk who's just like, hey, I'm just doing this, right? And 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 feeling like that's like an emotionally neutral thing when in fact that negativity can be an emotional contagion that could affect other people's work negatively. Or, you know, and I'm not exactly like, you know, my friends who know me, like I'm a stick in the mud. I'm a curmudgeon. I'm super negative. I, I complain constantly. And I have taken it upon myself to be, to strive to be a net increase in joy in the people that I talk to and that I interact with at work, because it is a resource that is draining in all of us all day long uh, on its own. And it needs to be filled up somehow. And I, I'm just, I have the capacity right now to take it upon myself to like, try to fill that tank up for the people that I interact with. Uh, so I, I want to touch on that because like, I just think it's super lucky that I get to like work on a computer and talk at a screen all day long. And if I didn't have that, we wouldn't be having this conversation, I suppose. But it's, uh, I, I'm just here to make the most of it, I guess. I love that. And you reminded me of Sandy Metz's closer, Lucky You. Tell us about it. She says she gave the closing talk a couple years ago, and it's called Lucky You. And it goes through, how did we all come to be sitting in this room right now? And like, what about redlining? What about the districting? What about all of these things that led to us to experience being here as lucky? I know you weren't saying it in that way, Justin, but it reminded me of that piece too, which is relevant. But yeah, the talk is completely amazing and I definitely recommend it. I, I think I mentioned it once before, the, the thing that, brought me uh, and our marketing director, Kathy, to think that like this would be a great forum to to talk a, a little bit about trust at work, is that I just, I, we're about to, and I think that actually the day that this podcast publishes is the day that we're going to publish a new conference talk that I've prepared called How to Trust Again. Uh, and we're going to post it to Test Double's YouTube channel. And so we might not have a direct link for the show notes necessarily, but it'll probably be at the top of that, as well as the top of our blog when the show goes live. And I hope that anyone who who enjoyed this conversation will also enjoy the kind of like high-paced, frenetic, you know, lots of keynote slide uh, style that I bring to communicating about a lot of these topics while still understanding that it's just like N equals one. This is like I'm sharing my experience and, and hopefully as food for thought to like maybe help you look back at your own experience and understand what connects from my experiences, my perspective, and my context that might be useful. And I hope that you'll find something.